Welcome to Eat, Drink, Think. I'm Amy O'Neill Hauk. In this podcast from Edible Communities, a network of magazines published in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, we celebrate all things local and sustainable in the food world. Today, we're speaking with Jack Hamrick. Jack is co-founder and CEO of Foraged, an online marketplace for specialty foods. Jack is a food lover and sustainability innovator. Foraged was born of his passion for food and his drive to use business as a force for environmental good. Alongside co-founder Andy Connor, Jack launched Foraged in May 2021. Prior to Foraged, Jack worked in recycling and composting, as well as in sustainability innovation at Anheuser-Busch, where among other achievements, he created North America's largest ever fleet deployment of fully electric freight distribution trucks. Jack graduated from the University of Virginia, where he earned a master's in business and a bachelor's in environmental thought and practice and global sustainability. Jack, welcome to Eat, Drink, Think. Thanks so much for having me, Amy. Well, we're glad you're here. Tell us a little more about Foraged and what prompted you to start the company with your co-founder, Andy Connor. Sure, of course. So we started Foraged in late April 2021, and it really was a culmination of quite a few years of kind of my search for marrying food and sustainability. So as you said in uh, your very kind intro, my whole background revolves around the whole world of sustainability from academic writing to distribution and logistics to recycling. But food has always been that kind of thread that's followed me around. And in 2020, during COVID, when everyone was kind of searching for new things, I got more serious about food sustainability and was really particularly interested in sustainable seaweed production. And my now co-founder, Andy, at the time, was a professional nature photographer in North Carolina on the coast. And so I contacted him and said, hey, uh, random, do you know anyone doing seaweed cultivation in North Carolina or oysters or anything like that. And he's, of course, it's like, no, like what, what are you talking about? I kind of explain, I'm looking to do something with food sustainability. I've been really interested in aquaculture, but I'm also kind of interested in mushrooms and I feel like they're, they're kind of mushrooming. They're, they're sort of everywhere right now, but I can't seem to find this one mushroom called chicken of the woods. And I used to have it frequently at my favorite restaurant when I lived in Washington, DC. I thought this was just a random aside. And of course, Andy says, well, what do you mean you can't find it? I have pounds and pounds of it. I'm a certified mushroom forager. <laughs> so I have no idea what that is. I've never heard of this. <laughs> and so I say, what is a certified forager? And how do you have so much? He says, well, I don't know what to do with it. I can't figure out how to sell it. I'm not going to knock on doors. Facebook is weird. But yeah, I have a bunch. Do you want to buy some? So light bulb moment, uh, of course, realizing it's a very expensive thing, which apparently only grows in the wild. I didn't know that. I can't figure out how to buy this. You have a ton of it and you're legally allowed to sell it. Why don't we think about that problem a little bit further? So at first I thought that's kind of a far out thing. How many people really need chicken of the woods mushroom? Um, but doing some research on social media, on Facebook, across a couple of different platforms, I realized there's a huge, huge community around this. Absolutely massive. And it's so localized in a similar way that Edible Magazine is. So we kind of put two and two together of here's this problem that we're both having. Here's this millions of people who are so passionate about this thing. If we can put these two together on a marketplace online, that kind of solves this huge issue and creates community around it. So fast forward to April 2021 and we launched Foraged and it's been off to the races ever since. Well, that's cool. It's a 
Very cute business meetup story as well. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to ask you some more about the local aspect of that later. I'm really interested in that idea. But first of all, you had the idea for your business because you were looking for these forage ingredients. How did you first encounter wild foods? And how have you seen the community of foragers and wild food enthusiasts evolve since you had that first interest in foraging? Sure. Good question. It's a little bit different than foraging, I suppose, but I grew up hunting and fishing lots. So in a way that's still, you know, hunting and gathering, eating venison, fish that we catch, so forth. I kind of got introduced to the mushroom side a bit unusually, I would say. I've always been trying to eat less red meat. I'm kind of a large person. I'm about 220 pounds and quite tall. So I eat a lot of red meat and that's not good. But I was getting so sick of portobello mushrooms. It's like the only thing that was available. And so as I'm looking around, I realized there actually is an incredible variety of mushrooms, uh, but you can't necessarily grow them. Portobello is really the only commercially scaled uh, mushroom to, to produce. So I did randomly encounter them at that restaurant I mentioned in D.C., and that was kind of the spark, um, which I, again, didn't quite realize it was wild. I didn't know Chicken of the Woods was wild. But once I started looking into it, that's when really this whole Pandora's box opened of not just wild mushrooms, but truffles and ramps and fiddleheads and cloudberries and huckleberries. And I mean, every single day, literally every day on forage.com, there is a food I've never heard of in my entire life from a place I've never heard of in my entire life. And there's an independent small scale food producer offering it to people like me who just am so thrilled to try something new. And have you tried um, gathering now that you've started the business? Has that become a hobby of yours? I spend way too much time behind my desk, unfortunately, <laughs> trying to get this off the ground. I do get out as much as I can. I recently moved to Brooklyn now, so I have a little bit more space. Uh, I got married last year, and my wife's job is way cooler than mine, so I had to move to New York City to be with her. Tear, um, tear. But yes, I am. And right now, I'm actually in Portland, Oregon with uh, Andy, my co-founder, and we've been getting out in the woods quite a bit here, which has been fantastic. Awesome. And what are your favorite things to cook with wild foods now that you have more access? I mean, in the springtime, morels and ramps, always just absolutely fantastic. Um, I was with Tom Calicchio, the founder of Gramercy Tavern and, and Top Chef host. He's actually uh, one of our investors uh, and had like kind of a private cooking lesson with him, which was a, a huge treat. So that was a, a real joy. Uh, there's also a lot of things on, on foraged that are not necessarily fresh, which is uh, always quite interesting. Things like... Um, uh, interesting types of nuts. We have a lot of wild hickory nuts and walnuts, good for snacking, lots of things, um, fine oils and boutique coffees that I really enjoy having around the house. But mushrooms are such a treat because of, of for, at least for me, one, the taste and two, the nutrition and all of these different types of greens and berries and fruits and things that are either wild or heirloom just add such uh, an interesting experience to to what could otherwise be kind of a bland meal. I noticed acorn flour, which I have never prepared, but I know that it's a huge process, very, very involved. So that's cool. Yeah, that's been a huge hit this fall. Um, there are several people on Forage uh, producing and selling their, their harvested acorn flour that they've done themselves, and it's been wildly popular. And how does your background in composting and sustainability influence Foraged? Good question. So... 
It's um, there's always interesting elements of sustainability around foraging and um, wild harvesting as a whole. Um, I find it to be a very effective tool for sustainability to help generate interest and enthusiasm for the care of these ingredients. Because if you over harvest, then there's nothing left. Then no one has anything, right? So it's I find that element of um, necessary preservation and incentive to preserve extremely powerful. I know some people will, I guess, disagree with that, uh, which I find unusual. But I think having an, an incentive to care for things uh, is really the best way to be doing things. Uh, further, in we, I try not to like rail against uh, industrial agriculture, particularly meat, because every, everyone knows, right? <laughs> it's not really worth me kicking and screaming. But by making the active choice. Uh, one, to avoid huge pollutants like red meat, like beef. And instead of uh, supporting some billion-dollar multinational polluting machine, uh, instead you're supporting, uh, you know, John in Redding, California, who is producing acorn flour on his homestead, zero inputs, hardly any outputs, independent person supporting him and his family. These types of choices on a daily basis can really add up over time. And, and this element of sustainability, um, I always try to think of it more in terms of a system than, than just a means or an end. And with food, it's particularly interesting because it touches really every single component of life, of society, uh, of, of really any aspect we can put into that system, better choices and better outcomes. And by creating that feedback loop and those positive mechanisms in the system itself, that's how you really generate the, the broader outcomes that benefit nature, society, the economy, people as a whole. Are you able to trickle down, as it were, are you able to support with your expertise, your obvious expertise, support small producers with their packaging choices, for instance, and their just their their own carbon footprint in their micro enterprises. Yeah, so we we're still quite young. We don't have very many resources ourselves. That's why I spend too much time behind my desk. Um, if, I wish we had more resources so we could help supply some some better choice packaging or supply some better choice coolants or whatever it might be. Um, we're pretty <laughs> resource strapped right now. So in the meantime, we, um, we offer a lot of things like recommendations and guides and suggestions and everything short of just buying things and, and supplying them than uh, ourselves, which unfortunately we can't quite yet. But the thing I really, um, I feel really, really inspired by in terms of these small scale independent producers is, is the fact that when they are economically empowered, via purchases from forage, they are then so they have such a greater ability to influence other positive impacts. So it's the same idea of that feedback loop I was just describing. If you are economically empowered as a small scale producer, you can tend to your land better. You can support other people in the community better. You can hire people to, to support your business. And there, there's a ton of externalities that come from, from that support as well. So foraging creates this intimate connection to place, right? Those who spend the time watching plants and creatures change throughout the season, awaiting the perfect time to harvest, they have a micro level attentiveness to their surroundings. And foraging can have environmental pitfalls, but it seems like it has the potential to make folks better caretakers of the land around them. Do you think that sense of connection that the foragers have is somehow passed on to the customers? Is it maybe contagious in a good way, or is there potentially a risk of disconnect when someone can just click to buy? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. So I really like to focus on the traceability aspect of it. And I like to say that um, not all traceable food is local and not all local food not all local food is traceable. So there's many times at the farmer's markets where that produce was not grown nearby, right? It was trucked in. We really focus on traceability and uh, having a map on every single product page, having a map on every storefront page for a given vendor, telling you about where it's from, how it was harvested, when it was harvested. So that it's not really just um, that disconnect that you're describing um, with, with validity of, you know, by now, it's here in my house, and like I'm, I'm king of the world, right? I think by implementing so much information and so much connection between the producer and the consumer, that tie, even though it is digital, um, and we do a lot of local things as well, um, I think that tie and that information is what empowers both sides to make that choice. So we hear from vendors frequently saying, uh, let's say someone's in Oregon, a vendor, and they are um, providing fresh mushrooms to a chef in West Virginia. This is a real example. They are so thrilled every single time they have an order from this chef in West Virginia. Granted, that's a far travel, but they know exactly where it's coming from. They are so happy to be able to supply someone with ingredients they don't have, particularly because they know that end consumer cares so much about it. It's not like you're just ordering, I don't know, a bag of nails, like a box of tissues, right? There's really so much essence and body and humanity in that ingredient. And they know that the consumer did, chose to, to order that for those reasons. So I think there's, um, it's decommodifying these foods because they are not commodities by nature. Uh, I think it's really important. So does that mean that the foragers, the individual small businesses are working within their state's cottage food laws or are they commercial producers and how might that affect their ability to sell, say, from Oregon to Virginia? So cottage food, one is very tangled, messy. Um, I wish it were more straightforward. You have things all the way from like municipal level to county to state. It's, it's very, very cluttered. Generally, cottage food laws pertain to processed goods. So like jams, jellies, baked goods, so forth. We have never done very much of that. We're pretty much only whole ingredients for now. Um, we are open to really sort of any independent food producer, but uh, what, what has led us to success so far and led our vendors to success is just whole ingredients, which don't um, uh, pertain to cottage food laws. Does that mean they don't need to be processed in a um, commercial processing facility either? Correct, yeah. So it would just be... Um, like a zucchini, right? You don't need a commercial kitchen to harvest a zucchini and, and provide it to someone. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I'm a customer looking for a safe, sustainably harvest foraged food, let's say sumac. What questions do I ask? How do I make sure what I'm buying is safe for me? And how do I make sure the forager is maintaining a harvest that lets their environment thrive? Yeah, good question. So we, um, Sumac, that's an interesting choice for this example. <laughs> um, it's running rampant in, in New York in some places right now, although it looks, it looks pretty in, in the fall. Um, so we really encourage messaging is, is a big thing throughout the website. We have mess, message vendor, you know, message John, message whoever, all over the place, because we really want people to be communicating and connecting. Also in the spirit of that decommodification, right? We want people to say, hey, Jack, um, 
your photos look amazing. This looks super cool. I saw it was harvested here or there. Tell me more about your process. Tell me more about your harvest methods. Um, how fresh is item X? When would it arrive? We see tons of, of communication throughout the site, which is really rewarding. And there are times we have had people um, actually message us saying, hey, I'm not so sure about the way this vendor is um, presenting this item. We had, we had someone harvesting truffles in a way that we didn't really agree with. And we have a code of standards, a code of, of ethics, and sustainability values. And this um, particular vendor, we looked into it after someone brought it to our attention and uh, we removed them from the site for, for not harvesting sustainably. So there's always going to be um, actors who are not uh, living up to the standards that we like to set for ourselves and our community. And, and we deal with it when that does come, but they're, they're quite rare, which has been reassuring. Cool. That's it sounds like the crowdsourcing aspect can be really helpful. Now, on the website, you do mention certifications and a vetting process for sellers. Can you explain a little bit more about how that works? Sure. So the certification process is equally, if not more, patchworked than cottage food law. For wild mushroom harvesting in particular, there are a handful of states uh, mostly on the East Coast, some in the Southeast and Mid-Atlantic, who uh, subscribe to Mushroom Mountain um, certification for wild mushroom harvesting, which is great. My co-founder, Andy, is part of um, that certification program himself. We really enjoy when people have the certification. Um, we're working on a feature now on the site where we'll have badging to say, like, here's the um, ID number of the certification that this person has um, obtained for themselves to show that they're uh, an expert. The challenge that becomes, there are very few states that really have either true regulation or laws, or even if they do have regulation or laws, the laws are often so vague to, to the point of being a little like silly. <laughs> like some states have laws that say, uh, a, a bona fide expert needs to harvest or inspect things before sale. What what does bona fide mean? <laughs> so the challenge becomes um, exclusionary in a way. Um, so if, if if you're from a state where there are literally no laws, no certifications on the books, it, it's a bit unfair to say, well, you don't have a certification. You're not allowed to join. That person could be a, a you know a thirty year mycologist expert, right? So we're actually working on a program ourselves, um, sort of like an introductory food sustainability, food harvesting sustainability program. Hopefully, we can find more time to work on this. We've been trying for <laughs> quite a while. Uh, things have been a little busy, um, but we're actually trying to work on our own sort of standard training course, introductory at least, to give people. Um, a base level of knowledge that we can then present on the front end of the website to say, uh, you know, Jack has completed level one of wild mushroom harvesting from the forage standard, and they're working on level two or, or whatever that might be. Easier said than done, um, but it would be really nice to have something that is more blanket than the laws today, because in in practice, there's very, very little on the books to be able to hold a standard to. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I think the same would probably apply to food handling, although municipalities and states probably have things that people could get if they wanted to and say, hey, I took this food safety course or right. that kind of thing. Right. Um, and you just encourage the sellers to put any kind of credentials that they have up there for, for people to see. Yeah. And if, if they do have it, then heck yeah, you know, tell the world about it. That's fantastic. It, it just like it becomes frustrating because not everyone does because it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So it's, mm -hmm. I don't, I, I hate to penalize someone who, who knows what they're doing, but yes, I wish there right. were more universal standards. Right. Um, and 
What are the most commonly searched and purchased things right now on Foraged? Good question. Um, I really enjoy the seasonality aspect of the products and the vendors. It's uh, It makes it so interesting, right? So in the spring, morels, huge, of course, from all over. There, we actually have some cultivated morels from, from a handful of vendors now, which has been pretty exciting. They taste great. Um, so spring is, of course, ramps, fiddleheads. Um, ramps in the northeast in particular have been more promising given some of the ramp population declines. West Virginia has had a really hard decline some places in the upper Midwest. Um, so we're always pretty careful about where, where ramps are coming from and, and how they're looking. By the middle of the summer, things are more shaking out into berries, fruits, um, other tubers and alliums. This fall was was really, really delightful with pawpaws. We did a ton of work with the um, Pawpaw Association of Ohio. We were at the Pawpaw Fest. Um, a lot of really fun stuff around pawpaws and pawpaw growing and all the cultivars and so forth. And then, of course, the wild mushrooms in the fall, matsutake always being a hit. Now that we're in sort of the middle of winter, uh, we're seeing a lot more interesting things like the the nuts that we talked about earlier, interesting um, sugars and seasonings and dehydrated products. We're actually going to be expanding more into preserved goods soon, um, hoping to do things like canned fish or um, smoked meat, um, always with kind of an interesting element to it. So I don't really care about, you know, your regular run of the mill beef jerky Cool, good. Not not really as exciting to me, uh, but we would love to get into um, kind of more interesting flair, more sustainable flair to some of those ingredients. Uh, so the winter is always a little bit um, more of a, a mystery bag in terms of what shelf stable products are available. Uh, but we're already looking forward to spring coming up here and probably two and a half months. Things will start to be kicking off in the southeast. Cool. I've never had a Popeye really look forward to trying that sometime i live in alaska oh. by the way <laughs> oh yes pawpaws would be would be difficult uh to ship up there but i had um you've probably heard of michael judd he's got sort of the pawpaw pawpaw leader um i was with him in brooklyn this summer and tried some of his pawpaw ice cream it was out of this world very good and what's the most unusual item ever sold on the marketplace oh boy good question well i'll say um as uh, sort of a tangent answer to that. One thing that we've been so pleasantly surprised uh, by is we've never done a whole lot to encourage cultivation supplies as a category. People kind of have joined and started selling seeds and nursery plants and sprouts and things like this. And it's become big. It's it's a, it's a sizable portion now of the marketplace. Probably 20% of sales, I would say, come from cultivation supplies and almost always edible cultivation supplies, as in a uh, pawpaw-rooted uh, sapling or, you know, some unusual raspberry bush or something like this. We love that because that's the perfect sustainability play for this. Like, we, we, um, there's a vendor in New York actually who has sold thousands and thousands of ramp seeds, sells ramp seeds all the time. And now people are propagating ramps all over the place. It's, it's wonderful. Cause then like it would be so, it would be so gratifying if people don't even need forage.com anymore because everyone's growing their own food, right? That would be awesome. <laughs> um, so kind of a side answer on that. Most unusual thing I've seen sold on foraged. I would probably still say cloudberries. I just, that name just, <laughs> I find it so funny. I had never heard of it. And in fact, I believe it's from a vendor in Alaska, actually. Yeah. Yeah. In, in the Arctic, I live in Southern Alaska and 
cloudberries are from up north. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, They're beautiful. They're so gorgeous. Well, it kind of leads nicely into my next question, what you were saying about, um, you know, making cultivation, make a, a platform like this not as necessary. Um, because when I when a wild food that I love is in season, it's awfully tempting to harvest as much of it as I can, right? And even if I'm harvesting something bountiful, like blueberries, I've learned to resist the urge to take more than I can process and use without waste. And I imagine that there must be added tension surrounding overforaging when capitalism is thrown into the mix, right? So can you walk us through some potential unintended consequences of your success and how are you thinking about addressing them? Sure. Good question. So this kind of harkens back to several of of the conversation lines from earlier in that the the consequence that is occurring that we've already seen is economic empowerment for small scale producers who can then channel that empowerment into unlimited numbers of of positive outcomes. Right. So as we, we talked about earlier, if you are in the food business and let's say you are harvesting ramps and morels and other things of that kind of biome category. You have not only not an incentive to overharvest, but you will be, you will lose your job if you overharvest, right? <laughs> so uh, surely someone has done that. I'm not, to, I don't think they have an R platform. Surely someone has does that, has done that, but that's really the cut and dry answer to me. I, I understand that some people find that, uh, crass, I suppose, but that makes complete sense to me. Um, you have a pure incentive, both as a steward of your own environment and as a small business owner to tend to things properly, to steward them properly, to encourage growth across all these different, um, aspects of your land. And by doing so, you are able, it's that feedback loop again, the better you tend to it, the more successful you are, the more people you feed, the more empowered you are, the better you tend, the more people you feed. And, and, and that feedback loop, we've seen this play out uh, in real life with people who use our site to grow their businesses. People have been able to quit their day jobs. Um, they're going full time now on food production. And it's not only, uh, I think people tend to, uh, people who get a little tense about these topics, um, they, they see this as some sort of like monster extraction machine when it, it's not. Right. Like there, there's no uh, giant barge in the middle of, of Alaskan waters, like dredging out the seafloor with their nets. Right. Fishing is kind of like foraging in some ways. Right. There's no giant dragnet of morels. <laughs> and the people who use our site are not the big, big name uh, distributors that people might think of when they think of that sort of extraction. The people who who run their businesses on foraged are those who used to supply those big name distributors that you, that you think of. Those are the extractors. Now we've empowered those people to go direct and run their own businesses in the responsible way that they would prefer. And they're making more income than they would if they were selling to those distributors. Um, so that, that system as a whole, uh, how many years of sustainability experience do I have now? Probably 15. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me. I hope it resonates with other folks. Uh, I would love to to hear from people in the audience as well uh, what what sort of solutions or ideas or perspectives they would have on on these topics. But to me, it's if you empower the right people to do the right thing, they're going to increasingly do more of the right thing and, and have more positive benefits as a result. 
Yeah, I think that idea of scale is really interesting. It sounds like what you're saying is you're scaling wide instead of deep and um, empowering individuals can um, protect um, sort of small areas maybe of the land that they're stewarding, which kind of makes me think a bit about the the rise in attention, um, thankfully, that Indigenous land stewards are getting these days. And I'm curious, does Forage work with any Indigenous land stewards or knowledge bearers in deciding what plants to offer or what areas might be avoided when harvesting? Sure, it's a great question. We've been building a partnership with the North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems Organization, Natives. And uh, we've done a couple small scale collaborations with them so far, mostly like some blog post exchanges, nothing too heavy quite yet. They are extremely busy because they run an absolutely stellar program. All the respect to them. But we're really excited to get more involved with food sovereignty, with indigenous food rights and food systems in the same way that that we find it to be very rewarding and the right thing to do to work with the source for the foods in general in terms of the small-scale food businesses that use forage to, to grow their own operations. We're really looking forward to working with those who know best, people like natives uh, in the indigenous food rights space. is something we're working really hard on. Haven't done a ton yet, given we've only been alive for about a year and a half, but it's on our to-do list and we're really excited to get more involved. And if anyone in the audience is involved with the world of indigenous food rights and food sovereignty, we would love to chat with you. Cool. Well, tell me what excites you coming up in this year? Yeah, good question. So we just launched our new custom software platform of a website. We just migrated to forage.com, which was very exciting. We used to be dot market. Seems like a trivial thing, but in the techie world, it I guess it matters quite a bit. <laughs> so we just launched our brand new website. We have a ton of amazing tools coming out soon to better support the independent food businesses on the site. We're actually working on an app as well, which we're very excited about to help support people in their local operations at the farmer's market, doing local deliveries, local pickups, point of sale. So we're really, really excited to be able to support both marketplace type activities where you know, people in West Virginia, as we said, can order from Oregon. And then we'll also have a tool where, you know, John Doe, the farmer, will have a fantastic set of technology tools for them to be able to use at the farmer's market. So we're really excited for that. We're also going to be expanding into some more categories soon. We've been pretty careful about meat and seafood up to this point. Mostly from the sustainability angle of it, trying to find good partners to introduce the categories onto the platform itself. We've been working for quite a few months now on that. We'll be introducing meat and seafood soon. We're hoping to be able to do some work with invasive species as well. Things like green crab and zebra mussel and boar and, and other things of that nature really excite me, both from a culinary perspective, the story behind it, and from the sustainability angle. So I would say the app and the meat and seafood expansion are probably most exciting for me. Yeah, I was going to ask you about invasive words. And are there plants as well that you find that foragers are really interested in in that sector? Yeah. Oh, great question. I should have mentioned this earlier. Plants are a little more 
touchy, I would say. We did do quite a bit of work with Japanese knotweed in the spring, which is highly invasive. And in that same cooking session I had with Tom Calicchio, we cooked some some Japanese knotweed and some green briar shoots and, and some other things, which was exciting. Um, I'm from the South, so kudzu is always uh, a monster for me. And I have not cooked it myself, I'll be honest with you, but it always really crushes my soul to see how much of it has taken over the forest in, in the Southeast. The invasive meat and seafood, I am absolutely thrilled about it. It's another legal stickiness around there that we haven't treaded into quite yet that we're, we're going to do some more research and, and so forth to make sure we're doing things in the right way. But it sure excites me like lionfish, snakehead, Asian carp, like really, really cool. I mean, what better way to support, you know, ecosystems and, and sustainability than eating your way through it? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, all right. You said all of this started with mariculture and kelp. So is there anything in the seaweed world that's going on with forage? Oh, good question. Good tie back. Yes. So there are a couple really stellar seaweed producers in Oregon, in fact, who use forage as well. Oregon Seaweed Company, amazing dull seaweed and some interesting products. We're hoping to work with some more people in Maine and coastal Canada as well on seaweed. If you know anyone in Alaska, please do let me know. I had seaweed salad for dinner last night. It was amazing. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, always love seaweed. It's so good. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delightful conversation. We've been listening to Cook, environmentalist, and co-founder of Foraged, Jack Hamrick. Thank you for joining us today at Eat, Drink, Think. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to pick up your local Edible magazine. You can find show notes for today's episode at ediblecommunities.com. <laughs>